Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Oust from Strata Central. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I am excellent. First week of the new year for us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Amanda. 2020, I think it's going to be a big one. I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to it and looking forward to jumping into our wins and challenges. We have a few that we've carried over from 2019, I think. Kick us off with your challenge, Rena. Recently, we had a case that was submitted by a lot owner against the owners' corporation for failing to repair and maintain common property matters. So this had been going on prior to our carriage of the scheme. And what had happened was there was water penetration and dampness in the apartment, which was being rented out. And when you look at all the correspondence, which we still haven't received all the books and records, unfortunately, there's we've got a few files and um, we've been told they've close the building down so we can't get them. That's another issue on the side. And when you look at what was provided and from the Strata Committee, they weren't even aware that the owner was having all these problems until someone had put a note into the secretary's letterbox saying, I've been trying to deal with this now and nothing has been resolved. So the Strata Managing Agent had not told the Strata Committee that there had been this problem. And I think there was a few emails sort of trying to, you know, send out someone, but nothing much was really done. So by the time the Strata Committee did find out about it, just before the AGM at that time, they um, had been provided with, with a letter of demand from that owner to compensate them for lost rent. And the interesting other item that was sought in the application was the tenant claimed that her clothes had been damaged by the mould and there were some photos and I mean she had some nice clothes but she's actually claiming five thousand dollars for the for the damaged clothes so we the owners corporation had already briefed a lawyer just before we took over we then put the insurer on notice of a potential claim and then this is where I think where I've mentioned in a previous episode 179 where the, the broker wasn't aware of which policy the claim should be made under so we've sought advice from the lawyer because we're not sure whether or not the owners corporation is liable to pay for a tenant's clothing, which in a sense, a sum of $5,000 has been purported to be the loss. Mm. There's no evidence in terms of receipts. I think most people, of course, I know wouldn't keep receipts of all their shopping, although I do. <laughs> um, of course you but do. Anyway, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know what year I bought it. So there you go. Um, <laughs> and so that lot owner also, Amanda, hasn't shown that they've actually paid that amount of money. So mm-hmm. we can't say that there's any loss to the owner for reimbursing the tenant for that $5,000. So we've asked the lawyer, you know, whether we should be reimbursing the tenant's clothing. And they said, oh yeah, you should make some contribution towards that cost. Mm. And the Strata Committee is saying, but why? Like, we don't understand if they haven't paid that First of all, there's no evidence that the lot owner has reimbursed the tenant anything. Mm. And if we pay for clothing, then aren't we sort of admitting that we agree with the fact that even though there is a claim for clothing, because if you give them a thousand or two thousand, then what's them something to say, man? Well, hang on, no, it's actually five thousand. Or yeah, yeah, that's the challenge that I'm facing, and I probably just need some of your advice as to 
how best to manage this particular problem that we have with the tenant clothing? Yeah, well, I can give you my thoughts and some informal guidance, certainly not advice on this podcast. <laughs> or I should ask, can I have your informal guidance and add <laughs> Yes, you may have my informal guidance. Uh, what we're talking about here is Section 106 of our Strata Schemes Management Act in New South Wales, which sets out the duty of an owner's corporation to repair and maintain the common property. And since this section came in, owners have had the right to also recover from the owner's corporation any reasonably foreseeable loss that they have suffered as owners as a result of the owner's corporation failing to repair and maintain the common property. So if we assume for now, Rena, that in your example, this water damage is indeed a result of a failure to repair and maintain. For example, maybe it's an old roof membrane that has been leaking, probably should have been replaced some years ago. It hasn't happened. So this triggers the right of the owner to seek their loss from the owner's corporation but the loss must be reasonably foreseeable and it must also be a result of the owner's corporation's failure to repair and maintain the common property. So there's two things there. I'm not sure that a $5,000 bill to replace clothes damaged apparently by mould from a tenant is reasonably foreseeable loss. I'm not sure how the clothes got mouldy, where they were located is the wardrobe actually above the site of the leak? Is it in any way connected to the water penetration? Mm. Even if they are mouldy clothes, how reasonable is this claim? And is it a result of the owner's corporation's leaky roof? So those are the kinds of things that the tribunal would be looking closely at if it was considering this claim. And indeed, the owner would need to prove the loss. So they would need to say, well, here's the evidence of the tenant claiming the amount from me. Here's me paying the tenant the mm. amount. But that's not necessarily going to be enough for them to get a full reimbursement, if you like. Mm. The tribunal has to look at those questions of whether the loss was reasonably foreseeable and when it's whether it is indeed connected to the contravention of Section 106 on the part of the Owners Corporation. I can hear where perhaps the lawyers that are advising you are coming from when they say, oh, well, look, just make a contribution. That's a commercial approach to avoid litigation. If we're talking about the sum of $5,000, then you're certainly going to be spending more than that defending a claim with legal representation in the tribunal for that kind of amount. So there probably is a commercial resolution there. But in terms of making sure you limit your exposure to any further liability, you can definitely do that, make that compromise, make that settlement on the basis that you make no admissions and you are making the payment without prejudice to your position in respect of that issue and the lawyers will be able to help you do that and make sure you do it in writing and make it very clear that this is a settlement. We don't necessarily admit that we owe this money or that we have the liability that you allege, but we're making this payment on the basis that everybody walks away from this claim and we're done and dusted. But in the first instance, Amanda, shouldn't the lot owner who's making the claim establish that they have actually reimbursed the tenant that amount so that that is part of the claim that they're making because just to allege that the tenant is seeking $5,000, I mean, how do we know that any claim is being made? I mean, there's no receipts. There's just 
some photographs of, of mouldy clothes. I am aware that the Owners Corporation has been doing various things to try and mitigate this particular problem, which has been historically happening, I think, because of the location of, of this apartment, which is, I think, below ground. It was like a warehouse that's had a refurb. So there's some pipes that were causing, you know, so little things that things have been done along the way mm. that, and a report had been obtained and things are being done. But I think the question that the Strata Committee is facing and, and in a sense has, has sought my guidance is really the question of this $5,000, not not the fact that perhaps there could be rent and other costs that, that the owners corporation is prepared to pay the um, affected lot owner, but it's more about this $5,000 claim for clothing, which the owner themselves has not yet shown evidence that they've paid. Have they shown evidence that the tenant has claimed it from them? I think they've just sent photographs and like a letter, but nothing. I think she might have put that in writing to him that she wants 5000 but we haven't seen any responses that he's made or any payments that he's made. And mm. now the tenant's gone. So he's trying to claim that oh, because okay. of the fact that this had happened. Although I think some of the members who live on site have said, well, you know, she was planning to leave anyway at the end of her lease. But one of those things where you really can't prove either way yeah. what the intention was. Well, that's interesting that the tenant has gone because Section 106, subsection 5 is very clear that it's the loss suffered by the owner. It's not the loss suffered by anybody else. So yeah. the owner's corporation's only obligation is to deal with the owner's claim. So I would be a little bit concerned if the tenant has gone and you have no line of communication with that person that the owner is now claiming this amount. It may be different if, for example, you were sitting around a table with both the owner and the tenant and the tenant is there saying, well, I've shelled out $5,000. Um, the owner owes it to me, but you, owner's corporation, owe it to the owner. So let's just shortcut this and pay it to me. Everybody signs a document that says that's been done and the owner has no further claim against you and the tenant has no further claim against the owner. Practically, those kinds of things do happen. Yeah. But where the tenant is not involved in the communication, I would be a concern to see clear evidence of the owner's loss. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Amanda, for your informal guidance. <laughs> As my informal guidance, I will send you the bill. Uh, <laughs> no problem. It is all interesting to me, hopefully to some other people who are listening. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I am going to talk about community management statements in the category of my challenge this week, CMSs as we like to call them, and what we need to do when it comes to amendments of the community management statement. Those managing community schemes, living in community schemes, will be well familiar with this when you have a bylaw within the CMS that is added, repealed, changed, we look to section 14 in the Community Land Management Act, which tells us that an amendment of the CMS has no effect until it is registered. And in New South Wales, that is registered with land registry services. And I'm raising this as a challenge this week because section 14 also says that an amendment cannot be accepted for registration later than two months after the passing of the resolution that makes the amendment. Now, that is very different to our strata schemes, which now have six months to register bylaw changes with land registry services. Two months is a far shorter period in practice when you're having to get a number of documents together 
produce an original certificate of title, get strata managers or committee members to sign documents and get things lodged. And I did have a scheme approach me the other week with an expired resolution, if you like. Mm. And there were quite a few amendments they had made at their general meeting to their community management statement. And by the time they got to me, they were out of time. I had to sadly inform them and they had to convene another general meeting to pass those amendments again. And did they pass, Amanda? They did pass again. Yes, it was all relatively straightforward, which was good. But at the time I'm recording this, we are now on the clock again and trying to um, make sure those amendments get registered in time. And I'm seeing how this time limit was missed last time by, uh, look, I'm not sure if it was the committee that didn't understand the time limit or the managing agent, but you think you got a lot of time, but once you get those documents together and send them off and then they sit on somebody's desk for a couple of weeks and then you think about Christmas and things like that, the time moves quickly. So anybody who's not aware that amendments to community management statements must be registered within two months of the resolution that passes the amendment, this is your reminder. That's a very good reminder, Amanda, because um, I do recall when I was working in my previous company that this actually did happen where the CMS change was overlooked and unfortunately, when the resolution was put forward again, it just barely got passed because there was problems with it in the first instance where it was passed. And I think the responsibility, I believe, probably should lie with the strata managing agent because I don't think the community members would be aware of what the statutory timeframes are. So I think as an agent, it is up to us to give guidance. And even if it's for a particular owner, because sometimes when we're passing bylaws or CMS changes a manner, it could be relating just to a particular lot. Yes. But I still believe that it's up to the managing agent to let that lot owner know that despite them being, having to pay for it, they still have to also be wary of, of the time frame that's applying to their registration of, of either the bylaw or a CMS bylaw change. Yes. And it is unhelpful that we have two different time frames for strata schemes and community schemes. Prior to our 2015 Act, under our 1996 Act for strata schemes, the period was two years to register a bylaw. Do you remember that, Rena? Yeah, I Uh, do remember that. That was fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So when our six months came in, we all got a little bit panicked and had to brush up on our internal operating procedures and make sure that everything could move quickly. For community schemes, that's obviously even quicker. But indeed, if they are looking at amending the uh, community legislation, then I certainly would be suggesting that this two-month time period be extended out to at least six months to match our strata scheme period. Yeah, I totally agree with that. All right. It's only the first week of the year, Rena, but I'm sure you have a win for us already. Yes. Well, this is one that's carried over from last year, Amanda, but one of our strata schemes that we've spoken previously about where they had some balconies that were illegally installed by owners many, many years ago. There's no development applications. There's no consent from council. And the owners corporation is now looking at basically replacing windows and balconies and installing new balconies. And we are also aware that some of the illegally installed balconies actually don't comply with the height restrictions now that would be in effect if we were to rebuild new balconies. And the question has come up, Amanda, which we've sought advice from you, is that how does the owners corporation through its strata committee ask those owners now who have bought apartments 
with balconies because some apartments have balconies on one side and some don't. And you can see that some balconies are all like some of them are a bit different because obviously that different people have installed them over the years. So people bought in, you know, obviously a balcony does add value to a lot. And how do we now come and say to them, well, now we want you to pull that balcony down. So we sought your advice on that. And um, you've told us that there's a case that states that the maintenance of common property includes the removal of any illegal works. And so, Madam, perhaps I can pass on to you to give more clarity in relation to that advice. Yeah, sure. And uh, I am not going to correct you in this case because it has indeed been legal advice that I've been able to give to the building that you're managing, Rena. And it's an interesting question. What I do just want to clarify for our listeners when we're talking about these illegally installed balconies, uh, because we are both familiar with the building and, and our listeners are not. What we're talking about here is a part of the common property that was uh, jutting out, if you like, from the uh, facade and owners had installed balustrades to enclose that part of the common property so they could use that area as their own personal balcony. So some had done that, some hadn't. And of course, as you said, Rena, that's a great benefit to those who've done it. But unfortunately, it was not approved work and the balustrades are not compliant with the relevant building codes. But this owner's corporation quite cleverly, I think, is appreciating that they can improve the value of everybody's investment by properly installing balconies and also doing some work to change windows to become doors, etc. So you had asked me to have a look at this and advise what the owners corporation could or should do about these illegally installed balustrades, if you like, non-compliant balustrades. And I have pointed you to the case of Crimbogianus, if I'm saying that correctly, and Strataplan 21702. It's a 2014 case. It's a case that was around for many years at the time, went through the tribunal, went through uh, the lower courts, ended up in the Court of Appeal. And that's a case that tells us that the Owners Corporation's duty to repair and maintain includes a duty to remove illegal installations from the common property and that that removal is part of maintaining the common property, which I quite like that. It makes sense to me. If somebody decides that they're going to add to the common property, whether it is a balustrade or it's perhaps an air conditioning unit or it's a lockbox that they have put near the letterboxes so their short-term tenants can get access, the owners corporation uh, should have the right to go and remove that item. And sometimes that can be removed without recourse to the lot owner. You just take it off the letterboxes or sometimes you need access to the lot to be able to carry out that removal. So you'd then be seeking permission to access. And if you couldn't access, I would say you'd be applying to the tribunal for an order to access on the basis that you have to, owners corporation, meet your section 106 duty to repair and maintain. So in a circumstance where these are illegal installations, then my view has been that the owners corporation can go ahead, remove those balustrades, replace them with the compliant new balustrades and have nice new safe balconies for everyone. Oh, thank you, Amanda. But what if the costs become excessive because we're going to have to deal with an owner who may not want us to come in and remove that, that balustrade or if the contractor says it's going to cost an, not a small amount but perhaps a more significant amount of money than perhaps had been originally quoted to remove that illegally installed balcony, does the owners' corporation 
would they be able to then try and recoup that from the lot owner that's installed the balcony or lives in an illegally installed apartment with that balcony? Yes, it would be the responsibility of the lot owner who has carried out the illegal installation to meet whatever costs are incurred by the owner's corporation in going in and removing that installation. And we find that set out in section 120 of our New South Wales Act. That's the section that says the owner's corporation can carry out work that an owner or tenant should have carried out and fails to do so, or work that an owner or tenant has been ordered by the tribunal to carry out and fails to do so. The owner's corporation can carry it out and recover the cost of the work from that person. So in a drawn out process or a defended process, if you like, where the owner perhaps doesn't agree that their installation is illegal and that they should remove it. And if they don't remove it, the owner's corporation will do so and recover the costs. The owner's corporation may have to apply to the tribunal and obtain one of these orders under section 120, requiring the owner to do it. And if that person doesn't do it, the owner's corporation can do it and recover the costs. I think our scenario is going to be, Amanda, or our challenge is that a lot of these balconies were installed way before the current owners who have bought them. So they actually weren't the ones that had actually illegally installed them. I know that doesn't make any difference in terms of people doing their due diligence and making sure that whatever apartment they buy, that, that it, all the approvals have been met. Mm. But I can see a, a challenge in, in that where the owners have, have bought apartments with these balconies that, that had been installed maybe even 20, 30 years ago. Mm. I think the key for that building is going to be to assess exactly what the additional cost is to the owner's corporation of having to remove the illegal installations before the new compliant installation goes in. If that cost is substantial, then the building may decide that it is worth spending some money to litigate that issue with an owner who uh, who doesn't come to the table. If the cost is not substantial and when faced with the comparable cost of legal fees, the owner's corporation might decide that they will take a commercial position and wear that. Yeah, that's good advice, Amanda. Thank you. Not a problem at all. And I did send you the bill for that one. (laughs) (laughs) On to my win for this week. I am continuing the theme of community schemes. And I want to share with you a story from a community that I worked with very briefly to assist one of the strata schemes within the community association to assist them to have solar panels installed on their roof. And since helping this scheme, I've heard a similar story, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of our listeners are going through this at the moment. With solar and energy saving measures becoming more and more popular, I think we're going to see more buildings confronting these kinds of questions. And this was the question in this particular case. The strata scheme wanted to put solar panels on their roof. They're part of a community with a number of different strata schemes, uh, quite a dense community. And the community association had said, you can't do that without getting our approval. And that's because our community management statement says that you cannot install anything on a lot without first getting the approval of the community association. 
So this strata scheme had assumed that what they were being told by their community association was correct. They had gone to a general meeting of the community, sought the approval, and the approval was not given because a couple of other buildings were concerned that the solar panels would block their view. Oh, how large were these panels, Amanda, in terms of height? Yes, I'm not sure of exactly the height, but I think it was a situation where they had to be propped up on an angle because of the type of roof or the location. So the thought of this other building was that they were actually going to block their view. I'm not sure if that was the case or not, but that was the complaint. And I've since heard similar complaints from other communities, so I don't think it's uncommon. I was called in to have a look at the community management statement at that stage and to advise on whether or not my interpretation was the same as the community schemes. And when I looked at the definition of lot, I realised that everybody had assumed that the definition meant a community development lot on which a strata scheme is located. So they had read the bylaw as meaning you can't add anything to a strata scheme building without getting the approval of the community association. But when I tracked through the definitions, the definition of lot was a strata lot. It was a lot within a strata scheme. You can't add anything to, and I am paraphrasing here, it's a bit more detailed than that, but you can't add anything to a strata lot without getting the approval of the community association. So I had said to my client, um, well, you're not adding anything to a, a strata lot. You're adding something to the building. You're adding something to your own common property. And there was no other part of the community management statement that governed that issue. I do think it was a bit of an oversight on the part of the drafters of the community management statement. They may have intended to regulate the strata schemes in a different way, but that is not what the community management statement said. And uh, the latest update on that situation is that the solar panels are being installed and uh, happy residents. Oh, that's a good outcome, Amanda. I think that you are correct that that probably was an omission because all the ones that I've seen, the community management statements, always refer to a, a strata scheme as a lot. So they talk about a lot within a strata scheme and the strata scheme as a lot also mm. to obtain consent because obviously that would affect the look of the development especially the communities where there is a theme that's prevalent in the design, mm. people start putting things that aren't consistent with that theme that, that may affect the values. So oh, that's a good outcome for them, Amanda, having a very clever person that looked at everything. Yeah. Like <laughs> well, I think we spoke about this in our last episode, Rena. It's important not to assume when we're reading legislation, when we're reading bylaws, when we're reading community management statements, important not to assume that we think we know what they mean, that we know what they mean, that this term that we see everywhere is defined the same way in this particular document as it is in other documents. So that is indeed the skill of the lawyer for, mm. from our experience. That's what we breathe day and night is reading this kind of stuff, preferably more day than night. Um, (laughs) And yes, and also a reminder to be very clear that your documents, that your bylaws actually say the things you want them to say. Exactly. Words are important. Yes. And that's lots of words from us. We're wishing everybody a uh, productive, successful, prosperous 2020. Yes, I'm getting my head around trying to say 2020, Amanda, and also writing it when I'm writing my notes and things. So (laughs) trying to get it back into my head. (laughs) We'll all get there. We always do. I look forward to catching up with you next time, Rena. See you then, Amanda. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today?